0: Take a Bible out this morning. You still have permission to use a table of contents, especially this morning as we look at the book of Haggai. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Only Obadiah is shorter. So you get to use your table of contents. Find Haggai, it's only two chapters long. If you want to think about our Sunday morning sermon series like a football game, you could say we've entered the fourth quarter. We're in the very tail end of this series. We've talked about nine previous minor prophets. We have three to go. The last three minor prophets actually all sort of hang together. This is on your notes. If you'd like to follow along, you can do so. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are known as the post-exilic prophets. They get that name because they lived post-exile, after the exile. They all three go together. Malachi actually comes a little bit later. Haggai and Zechariah, you can sort of think of like two sides of the same coin. They were sort of on the scene at the same time. And I was thinking about these two guys this week, Haggai and Zechariah. They're completely different. I mean, they're completely different. Haggai, if I can just go with a stereotype, Haggai is like an accountant with glasses and a pocket protector And his own calculator, and he's just very sort of straight laced to the point, nothing flashy. I hate to say that he's boring because then you're gonna check out this morning, okay? He's not boring, he's just direct, and he has a plan, and he's gonna get in, and he's gonna say what he needs to say, and he's gonna be done. Zechariah is more like your uncle who used to travel around the country in a VW van, right? He's got all kinds of great stories and visions and exciting things, and half the time you don't have any idea what he's talking about, but you really like listening to him. But these two guys go together, and it's sort of a reminder that God uses all sorts of people, right? And he uses people in different ways. He takes some of us who are a little more straight-laced and to the point and direct, and he uses us for his glory, and then he takes some of us who are a little more out there, a little more eccentric, and he uses those folks as well, But these three guys go together, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Haggai preached after the Jews had returned from exile in Babylon. And so we'll just put this on our timeline. We've talked about this timeline every week. It should be very familiar if you've been here over the last several months. The unified kingdom was the nation of Israel as it was established first under Saul. And then we got rid of Saul, and we had David. And then David died, and we had Solomon. All of the tribes of Israel united in one kingdom, one nation, the unified Kingdom. After Solomon dies, the kingdom gets split in two. Jeroboam takes the northern tribes and Rehoboam takes the southern tribes and they split it into two different nations. They avoid an all out civil war. You have Israel in the north and you have Judah down in the south. Almost immediately, Israel starts pursuing idols, worshiping idols, chasing idols. They look exactly like all the other nations that God kicked out of the promised land. And the result of that is in 722, God sent the Assyrians. And they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel and they hauled those people into exile. The same thing happened. It was just a little bit delayed to Judah in the south. In 586, give or take, King Nebuchadnezzar came. He marched against Judah, he conquered Jerusalem, and he took the people into exile. And I want to make something clear about these two exiles, because this is going to come up later. When the Assyrians marched against Israel, and then when the Babylonians marched against Judah, the situation was not God up in heaven saying, Oh me, oh my, I, I didn't know these guys were going to come. The situation was God looking at his people and their sin and their idolatry and saying, I'm going to punish you for your sin just like I said I was going to do. I warned you about this way, way, way back, way before Solomon, way before David, way before Saul, way before any of them. I warned you that if you chased after other gods, I was going to kick you right out of this land, and you've done it. And I've been patient with you for centuries, but now I'm going to kick you out. God sent the Assyrians, and God sent the Babylonians. Haggai shows up at the tail end of this. Both of the nations have been sent into exile. God's punished Israel. He's punished Judah. And the people have started coming back. They've sort of started filtering back into the promised land. And that's where Haggai pops into the story. There was all sorts of folks coming back from exile But really, they came in three waves. You can just sort of think about it as three different groups that came back. There was a group in 538, a group in 458, and a group in 444, all B.C. And I'll just, if you'll indulge me with a little more history, I'll put the timeline back up. And the one that I really want you to see is Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel leads a group of people back from exile. Zerubbabel was sort of the long-lost great-great-great-great-grandson of King David. And he gets a group of exiles to come back, a big group. This was the biggest group, but almost 50,000 of them come back from exile. And they come back, and they have the blessing of a pagan king to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He organizes all these folks. God sends him back, and the mission is go back. Nebuchadnezzar flattened the temple and I want you to rebuild it. And so he leads these people back, a big group of exiles. They're back in the promised land, back in the city of David, and they're building the temple, and they're just gangbusters at the start. I mean, they're really excited. They know the mission. Everybody's in until they're not. They just quit. God sent them back with one special job, right? I'm sending you back to the The promised place, the promised land, the promised city, rebuild the temple. And they take off building it, and then they just sort of quit. And a few months turn into a year, and a few years turn into a decade. And 18 years later, they still haven't rebuilt the temple. They're back in the land. They just haven't done the one thing that God told them to do And that's where Haggai pops into the story. If we wanted to summarize it in one sentence, we would say this. Haggai is a book about obedience. That's the the nature of the whole book. Will you obey the one thing that God sent you back here to do? It's not a matter of, will you obey and be good enough for God to love you? But it's a matter of, God has loved you. He's preserved a remnant. He's brought you back into the promised land now After all of this grace he's poured out on you, will you do the one thing that he really sent you back to do? It's a book about obedience. A few thoughts about Haggai the man and then we'll talk about the message. What do we know about Haggai? We know that his name means one who has been on the pilgrimage. If you've ever studied Islam, you know that one of the pillars of Islam is called the Hajj, H A J J, the Hajj, and it's traveling to Mecca on this pilgrimage. That's the same sort of uh, Semitic root word in Haggai, H A G G. And the idea is that you've gone on some sort of religious trip, some sort of religious pilgrimage. We don't really know why he's named Haggai. Maybe at some point his parents went on a trip and he was born during that trip. Maybe he was born when they were supposed to be celebrating the Passover. We don't really know, but his name means one who has been on the pilgrimage. He describes himself as a prophet sent by God. This is a little bit redundant, and this is where I think Haggai's type A personality comes out. He's a minor prophet. He's in with these books. We know who he is. We know what he's about. Not all of the prophets take space in their books to tell us, oh, by the way, I'm a prophet. Oh, by the way, God sent me. But Haggai wants you to know that. He wants you to know, I'm a prophet. I'm sent by God. And so in verse 1, he says, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, I told you, type A, right? He's telling you. This is when it was. This is when this happened. The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. You can jump down to verse 12. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. God sent me. He wants the people to know that. God sent me to deliver this message. I'm a prophet. I've heard from the Lord. He's given me a message, and my job is to deliver that message to you. There's a little bit of debate about how old this guy was. One group of Bible scholars says he was alive, living in Jerusalem, when Nebuchadnezzar came, conquered the city, and flattened the temple. He saw Solomon's temple and all its glory and all its beauty and all that. He saw it. He saw it come down to the ground. They took him into exile. He lived the 70 or so years in exile, and then he came back. That would make him a pretty old guy, but it's possible. Another group of Bible scholars say, no, that's that's unlikely. There's nothing in the book that says that. He was probably born in exile. His parents or his grandparents were taken into exile. He was born there, and then God sent him back. So you can pick the the view that you prefer as we work through the book. I want to talk to you about the message of this book. It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. It's really pretty straightforward. I want to talk to you about what Haggai had to say to the people, how it applies to us, And then we'll end with one special thought of application. So what was Haggai's message to God's people? Number one, Haggai called the people to finish the work of rebuilding the temple. They had made a start, but they didn't finish. They took a step in the right direction of obedience, but then they didn't follow through. And Haggai comes along and he says to the people, you need to finish Do what God has sent you back here to do. Look at Haggai chapter 1 verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say, these exiles, this riffraff, this 50,000 or so that I have brought back to Jerusalem, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Notice what they didn't say. They didn't say, we don't want anything to do with your temple. And they didn't say, temples are dumb. They didn't say, we don't want a temple. They just said, now's not the right time. We know you sent us back here to do it. We know that's our our mission. That's our job. That's why we're here. But it's just not a good time to do it. It's not that they wanted to disobey. They just wanted to delay their obedience we'll build the temple we're just not going to do it right now and God hears what the people are saying it's not a good time to build the temple and God has sort of a three-part response and this is not on your notes but I'll put it on the screen God says number one you've had time to build your own house number two your crops are failing and number three I want you to focus on my glory and just sort of take each one of those and keep your Bible open I'll show you a few verses building their own homes. Look at verse 4. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? I know that in 2018, wood paneling on the walls is a little bit out of style. It's outdated. If you bought a house, you would want to take it down and put something else up. In Haggai's day, that was the going thing, paneling up in the house. And God says, okay, It's not a good time to build my house, but it's a good time to build yours. The man cave looks really nice. The she shed is all decked out. I mean, it looks great. You got the nice paneling up. You put the shiplap up, and you got the decorations from Magnolia. Everything looks perfect. And you haven't done the one thing that I asked you to do. It's really not a matter of time, it's just a matter of priority. So God calls them on that. Secondly, he points out that their crops were failing. Look at verse 6. He says, you have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. This is God saying to the people, you keep wondering why your crops aren't Bringing back a good harvest, and you just can't seem to get ahead. And in your mind, you think, when we get everything taken care of, then we'll build that temple. You just, a year goes by, two years, a decade, 18 years, and it's still not done. And what God is saying is, I'm actually the one frustrating your plans. The reason your crops were lousy is me. I ruined it. I'm against you in these things. God takes the blame or the credit or however you want to look at it. He says, the reason you can't ever get ahead is that I'm trying to get your attention. And you can look at this one of two ways. Some of you may look at it and say, well, God was angry with them. He was judging these people. He was, he was messing up their crops and their harvest and they couldn't get ahead and they just were struggling, you know. God was punishing them. I think you could also look at it and say God was being very merciful to these people. He was being very patient with these people. And he was trying to get their attention so that they didn't get lured into worshiping the God of money, the God of prosperity, the God of success. And God knew if it just all goes well for these people and they just have bumper crop after bumper crop, they're never going to reach the point where they then say, okay, now let's build the temple. They're not going to get there. So God says, I'm frustrating your plans and I'm not doing it just to, to be mean to you. I'm trying to save you from this idol of prosperity and success. So he says, your crops are failing. Last, verse 8, he says, I want you to focus on my glory. Haggai 1.8, go to the hills, bring the wood, build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. I want you to do this because when you do it, it will glorify me. Let me just explain how that all played out in Haggai's time. There's another prophet, not a minor prophet, a major prophet. His name is Ezekiel. He lived during the time when the people in Jerusalem were conquered and then taken into exile. And Ezekiel tells us something interesting. You can read it in Ezekiel 36 or so later. Ezekiel says this, make no mistake about it, God sent Nebuchadnezzar to conquer the people and to take them into exile. He doesn't back off that one inch. But he says, once the people got into exile, the whole thing kind of looked bad on the Lord. It didn't really make him look that good. And Ezekiel explains it. He says, when these Hebrew people showed up in Babylon as exiles, the Babylonians made fun of them. And not only did they make fun of them, but they made fun of their God. The Babylonians said, well, look at the Hebrews. Some God you worship. Looks like our gods were stronger. Looks like our army was better. Looks like your God couldn't even protect his own house. Because the word on the street is that our army flattened it to the ground and not one stone was left on top of the other. I bet you feel pretty dumb for worshiping that god, don't you? And they laughed at the people and they mocked the people and they made fun of the Lord and they said, surely he wasn't able to protect his people. Surely he wasn't able to stop our armies. Surely he wasn't even able to protect his own house, the temple in Jerusalem. And God is saying through Haggai to the people, I want you to care about what I care most about. Not paneled houses, not bumper crops, my glory. And all those people in Babylon and Persia and all these other world empires that are so high and mighty on themselves, they're looking at you, this remnant of people who have been brought back to the land, and they're laughing at you. And when they laugh at you, they're laughing at me. Build the house. Don't do it for your own sake. Do it for my reputation. Get the wood, finish the house, and do it that I may be glorified. That's what God says to the people. So he wants them to finish the work. Now here's one of the cool parts about Haggai. You can read it at the end of chapter 1, verse 12. The people listened. They didn't listen to most of the prophets, but they listened to Haggai. It says, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed. And if you're studying the book of Haggai, that's a word you ought to underline and circle and highlight and put stars in the margin and say, they did it. Like, for all the times we read the Old Testament and we thumb our nose at these people and we say, you're stubborn and you're stiff-necked and you don't get it and you refuse to obey and you chase all these idols, here's one time they listened. They did it. God sent Haggai, Haggai said, finish the job, and they obeyed. Did they obey Haggai? Haggai says, they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them and the people feared God. They did what God wanted them to do. They built this temple. They put it up. But then they got really discouraged. And they got discouraged because they started playing the comparison game. They were thinking about, some of them remembered, Solomon's temple and how amazing it was and some of them were looking at this new one and they were saying eesh this is not the greatest temple we've ever seen Solomon's temple was way better when we lived in Babylon they had amazing temples this is a little bit embarrassing and so Haggai's not done talking to the people the second thing he says is that God will dwell with his people he promises them that God will once again dwell with the people Look at Haggai 2, and let's read verse 1 to 5. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, the governor slash king, the high priest, and all the folks who came back. Verse 3. Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Do you see the scene? You can read about it here in Haggai 2. You can also read about it in Ezra chapter 3. They get this thing up, they have a big celebration, and it's sort of a mixed reaction. On the one hand, you have all the old guys, and Ezra tells us that the old guys stood over to one side and they wept when they saw the new temple. And they wept because it really was pathetic. But then you had the young guys over on this side. The young guys had never seen a temple, they'd lived their entire life in exile. They didn't care what Solomon's temple looked like. They were just glad to be back in Jerusalem and have a temple. And they were excited and they were cheering. And Ezra says you had this commotion coming up from the crowd. And Ezra says, this is sort of my paraphrase, you could hear it a long ways away. The crying and the rejoicing, both going up at the same time. And Haggai doesn't come and just talk to the old guys and he doesn't come and just talk to the young guys. He talks to all the people to Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, to Joshua, to all of them. And he says, listen, listen, listen. you got to remember this. God is with you. Do not stand here today and be nostalgic and sentimental about how great that old temple was. The gold on that temple did not make it great. It was great because the Lord lived there with you. That's what made it great. Not the gold, not the jewels, not the artwork, not the bronze, not the silver, not all the, the fancy stones. That was not what made it great. What made it great is that God was there with you. And then speaking to the younger guys, the same message. Don't get so excited about a building. I know you've spent your whole life living in Babylon. You've heard stories about the temple. You've wished you had a temple. Now you have a temple. You're so excited about the temple. Get over the building. What really matters is that God is here with you. God is dwelling with his people. That's the second thing Haggai says. Here's the third thing he says. God is going to bless his people. He's going to bless them. And you could say he's going to bless them in spite of themselves. If you start reading in Haggai 2:10, you start reading about some stuff that is a little bit hard to sort through in your mind. Haggai kind of takes us back to the book of Leviticus, which you say, oh, that sounds thrilling, right? Let's go quote Leviticus and talk about Leviticus. I told you, this guy's a detail guy. He's an he's a in-the-weeds kind of guy. And he, he brings up a, an interesting point. Haggai says this. Under this old covenant, you have two sort of states. You have a state that the Bible calls clean, and you have a state that the Bible calls unclean. Clean and unclean. And here's how it works. If you are clean, ceremonially clean, and you touch something that's unclean, the uncleanliness transfers to you and you become unclean. Vice versa, if you are unclean and there's something that's clean and you touch it, it doesn't make you suddenly clean. You make that thing unclean. Right? What transfers is the yuckiness, the uncleanliness. That's his point. And then he says this in Haggai chapter 2, verse 14. He says, So it is with this people, with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, what they offer there is unclean. You got the temple. You're offering these sacrifices. But it's just like back in Leviticus. Because you're unclean, your sacrifices are unclean. Because your heart is wicked and sinful, even the offerings that you're bringing and trying to be obedient are unclean. They're not pleasing to me. They're not, this is not a, a situation where you can sort of fix things yourself because the problem isn't the sacrifice. The problem is you. The problem is your heart. The problem is your sin. And then he says, in spite of that, I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to bless you because you're clean or you're pure or you're holy or you're righteous or any of these things. I'm just going to bless you because I'm your God and I love you. And in spite of your uncleanliness, I'm going to bless you. And that's the last thing he says in verse 19. From this day on, I will bless you. I've been against you. I've been messing with your harvest and I've been messing with your 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 crops and I've been messing with your agriculture and your herds and all this stuff and I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not because you're right. You're not right. It's not because you're clean. You're unclean. I'm just going to do it because I love you. I'm going to dwell with you, and I'm going to bless you. The last thing he says is this. God is going to restore David's throne. He's going to restore David's throne. If you look in Haggai 2.21, the message is supposed to go to Zerubbabel. We've read his name several times in the book. And if you look at verse 23, the message is still directed to Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord. And God says he's going to make him like a signet ring. And I'll be honest with you, the name David never pops up in this book. Never pops up at the the last paragraph where I'm telling you that what God is saying is He's going to restore David's line. But here's the idea. Many, many years earlier, God made a promise to David, and he said, David, I'm going to build a house for you. Remember, David wanted to build a house for God, and God shows up, and he said, I don't need you to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. And this house that I'm going to build you is a dynasty, a line of kings that will stretch on forever. It's never going to end. And it was fulfilled, and there was Solomon, and the, the other kings followed, and we go all the way down the line. But then we come to the exile, and that line of kings just sort of disappears. And it looks like for a time that God has gone back on his promise. Like he's forgotten what he said he would do to David. But here, this long lost descendant of David shows up with a bunch of exiles in Jerusalem. He's put in charge as the governor. And God says, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you like my signet ring. Like you're going to bear my authority. You're going to bear my name before the people. I'm going to establish you. And he's making us think all the way back to David and he's pointing us forward. This isn't the last time you read the name Zerubbabel in the Bible. In fact, if you just flip a few pages to the right and you read the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, he's there in both of the genealogies, the one in Matthew and the one in Luke. And when Haggai says all this stuff about give a message to Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, he's going to be like my signet ring, he's making us go back to David and the promise that God made to David, and he's making us look forward to Jesus in the fulfillment of all of those promises. That's the book in a nutshell. It's not complicated. This is it. Finish the work, and they did it. And then he says, God's gonna be with you, and God's gonna bless you, and God's gonna restore this line, this, this throne of David, and another king is gonna come. That's the book in a nutshell. I want you to think just for a minute about how it applies to your life. You may read this old story and you say, okay, there was a a type A prophet back then and he told the people to get with it and they got with it and he made them some promises. So what? What does it have to do with me? Let me give you just three thoughts of application of how this might apply to, to your life and my life. Number one, we should evaluate our priorities. Evaluate our priorities. My guess is that you're a lot like the people that Haggai preached to. And when I say you, I mean you, the Sunday morning crowd. You're a lot like the people that Haggai talked to. They weren't anti-Yahweh. They weren't boycotting a temple. They weren't trying to, to establish some sort of secular government over Jerusalem. They were all for obeying the Lord. They just wanted to do it later. Now is not a good time. They had reasons they thought would pass the test, but they said, we'll do that later. You're here on a Sunday morning. My guess is I could list off a long trail of things that God wants you to do, and you would sit there and you would nod and you would say, yes, uh uh-huh, I know that. Yeah, you're right. Amen. That's good. But then in your heart, you may leave this room and you may say, you know, it's just not a good time. I'm really busy right now. And i got a lot of other things going on. And it's not that you want to work against the Lord. It's not that you want to completely cut Him out of your life. It's not that you're, you're uninterested in His will for you. It's just that you're busy. You have stuff going on. And you may say to yourself, you know, preacher's right. I need to, I need to do that. And after we get through the holidays, I'm going to get real serious. I mean, when the weather warms up, Whatever it may be. We've talked about this before even in this series. What Haggai said to the people and what Haggai would say to you and me is, delayed obedience is disobedience. Saying in your heart, it's not the time. You might as well just say to the Lord, no. Haggai said, do it and do it now. You've had 18 years to do it. What are you waiting for? Get it done. And then in a matter of weeks, they were done. They made their plans and they finished it. They did it. And there's a lesson in there for us. Not to walk out of this room and say, oh, he is right. I really got to get serious about that later, but to do it now and to check our priorities. Secondly, practice repentance. Practice repentance. These people had spent decades wishing they lived in another place. Some of you can relate. I mean, they wanted out. They wanted to be back home. They did not want to be there. And then they finally got there. And there wasn't just like, you know, the ideal place you'd like to live. There was the promised land. The place that God had picked and given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and the nation and all the rest of them. I mean, this was the place to be. They were in the right place. They were with the right people. They had left those Babylonians in Babylon and the Persians in Persia, and they came back to the promised land, this remnant, 50,000 strong. They were in the right place with the right people at the right time, and their hearts weren't right. I hope you see how obvious the application is to you this morning. You're in the right place. You're with the right people, but your heart may not be right. And Haggai comes to these folks and he says, Look, it's not just enough to be back here in the land. Do not be satisfied with that. Don't be satisfied with just sort of being on the periphery of what God is doing amongst his people. Get in on the action, get your heart right. Seek the Lord. Turn from your sin and do what He's calling you to do. That's the essence of repentance. Put aside your paneled houses. Put aside your fields and all the things that you think are more important than the Lord and do the one thing that He's called you to do. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord practice repentance that's what Haggai called the people to do I think that's what he would call us to do he would walk into a room like this and he would say Sunday morning great you're here right place right time right people everything's right is your heart right it may look like you've got all your spiritual ducks in a row to everyone else in a room but in your own heart you might know it's not right I'm just sort of showing up at the right place at the right time with the right folks. And Haggai would say, you need to practice repentance. Number three, finish the work that God gave us. Finish it. For Haggai's audience, that was the temple. If you had 18 years, build the thing already. Finish it. And they listened and they did it. For us, on this side of the new covenant, on this side of the cross, on this side of Jesus of Nazareth, not looking forward to this son of Zerubbabel, but looking back to the son of Zerubbabel, we say, well, what does God want from us? What does Jesus want us to do? If you read the Gospels, it's pretty clear. Because at the end of every Gospels, and then once, uh, once again at the beginning of Acts, it's laid out for us. And the mission, if you will, is to make disciples of all the nations. That's what he told us to do. Make disciples. Get after it. You say, well, I have a job. I know you have a job. You say, well, I have a family and a mortgage. And things. I'm not saying everyone needs to quit their job and pay off their mortgage and cash in your 401K and move to Timbuktu and we all live as missionaries. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that God has put us together in a church and he's given us one mission, make disciples of all the nations. Figure it out, work together and get the job done. These people had 18 years to build the temple. We've had 2,000 years, 2,000 years to do one thing, and it's not done. There are millions and millions of people around the world who have never heard the name of Jesus. There are no disciples there. There are no churches there. At the end of every calendar year, we take up a missions offering for that purpose. We want to send people. We want to make a sacrifice. We want to be involved. We may stay here and stay in our house and stay at our job and stay with our family, but we all make a sacrifice. Some make the sacrifice to go and some make the sacrifice to give. Why do we do that? Why do I tell you this is the most important offering we take during the year? It's because God gave us one job to do and it's not done. And I think if Haggai were to walk in the room, he would just very simply look at us and say, you need to check your priorities. You need to start practicing repentance, not just showing up on Sunday, but actually practicing repentance. And you need to finish the job, finish the mission. One last thought of application as we think about new deacons in our church when we knew several months back that we would need to pick a Sunday to ordain a new group of deacons and to set, a, set aside a group of men to serve in a special way, I knew we would be in this series, and I knew whatever Sunday it falls on, we're going to do it when we talk about Haggai. Haggai has so much to say To us as believers and especially to the men that we're setting aside this morning. Some of the guys that we're ordaining this morning, we'll put a picture of them up. Some of these guys have served as deacons in other churches. Some of them have not. Josh, Ski, David, Jerry, and Matt. All of these guys are involved in ministry here at Emmanuel. All of these guys are connected in serving. And one of the most important things is we've talked about as our leadership Who are we going to ask to serve in this role? We don't want to ask anybody that we would say, would you start serving in this capacity? We wanted to find men where we could say, would you just continue doing exactly what you're doing? Not would you begin something new, but would you just press on with what you've been doing? And I, we met with these guys a week ago, Sunday night. We've met with them individually over the last several months. We've talked with them about uh, doctrine and their salvation experience. We've talked with them about their families and their wives and their children and all of those things. And we met last Sunday night, our elders and, and all of our deacons and the new deacons. And I looked at those guys in the face and I just reminded them of some very simple things. I'll remind those men of the same things this morning and you get to listen in. When we set these men aside this morning to serve in this capacity, we're putting a target on their back. The Bible says that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking people to devour, and we're putting a bullseye right on their back. And we're saying this person represents us. This person represents Jesus in a a special, unique way. We're putting that target on their back, and I told those guys, you got to beware. you got to be watchful. Peter says you got to be sober-minded. You have to know what the stakes are. you got to realize what you're signing up for. It's not a name tag. It's not a badge. It's not a, it's not a recognition in this room. It's a bullseye on your back. We talked about Acts chapter 6, the very first deacons who were selected. There was a problem in the church, and they said, we need a group of guys. We need men who are full of the Holy Spirit, we need men who are wise, and we need men who are of good reputation. And what we're going to do is ask those men to serve in a unique way at a unique time in a unique church so that the unity of the church would be preserved and that the mission of the church would continue. Right? These first deacons in Acts 6, they're an awful lot like Haggai. Coming alongside the leaders of the church, coming alongside the people of God and saying, look, we got to stick together and we got to do the one thing God told us to do. We're going to take care of this issue. We're going to solve it. Press on with the mission. That's what we're asking these guys to do. To come alongside our leadership, to serve at Emmanuel in a way that brings unity to our church so that the mission can continue. We talked to these guys about 1 Timothy chapter 3. Timothy gets a long list of things from Paul about what a deacon ought to look like and what his family life ought to be like and all these things. It's, it's issues of character. It's issues of integrity. And we're asking these men, we're saying to them, we're not looking for guys who can play a role. We're asking for guys who meet these qualifications in this room on Sunday mornings and in your home when you leave and at the office and in the oil field and wherever you find yourself. We're looking for men of character and men of integrity. In a real sense, what we're asking of these guys that we set apart this morning for this task, we're asking them to do what Haggai asked the people to do. It's not complicated. It's really pretty simple. We want you to have your priorities in order. Have your priorities in order. Don't be satisfied to be in the right place at the right time with the right group, but make sure that your heart is right. Make sure that you care about what God cares most about. Secondly, practice repentance. Turn from sin and seek the Lord. Turn from sin and seek the Lord. Do it today, do it tomorrow, do it the next day, the day after that, the week after that, the month after that. Practice repentance. Lastly, be men who finish the job. God has given these men varied ministries at our church. Here at Emmanuel, we don't ask deacons to do one set thing. We just look for men who are serving, and we say we want to affirm your ministry here. We want to recognize you as a deacon and we're asking these men, finish the mission that God set before you. Just keep going. Don't quit. Don't get sidetracked. Don't let something else become more important. Just keep going and press on with this mission.